Okay, hello and welcome back to the Cine Skinny. It's the film podcast from the team behind the Skinny magazine. Uh, Anna Heat has gone to Venice. So it's me, Peter Simpson, with Lewis Robertson. Hello. And Jamie Dunn. Hello. We're back in Upload Studios in Leith after our brief sojourn into being live and in the flesh. Thank you, before we start, to everyone who came down to the Cine Skinny live event that we did at Codebase during the Fringe. And thanks in particular to Will Anderson, the award-winning Will Anderson, off of Will Anderson and Ainsley Henderson, directors of A Cat Called Dom, which won the Powell and Pressburger Award for Best Feature at the Edinburgh Film Festival after, as we said before we came on, Jamie, the Cine Skinny bump. Yeah, it's, it must have had an effect. The, the skinny skinny, so next year, if you want to w- win an award, basically get on the show. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, atta- you know come, to, come to us. If you want to win an award before next year, Palm d'Or, <laughs> Golden, Oscar. Golden Bear and Oscar, get on yeah. the podcast. We've got that. Cronenberg, pal- he was close. He could have come on the show. Well, you know what? If he'd, uh, I mean, if he came on the show, you might hear some things he didn't want to hear, but also he <laughs> might end up winning the Pandora. So who's to say what could happen? Uh, so yeah, uh, we're going to be talking today. It's a bit of a, a story of two halves today. We're going to start off by talking about some very kind of like youth friendly material, a uh, new surfing documentary, Ride the Wave, which is all about a kind of young Scottish surfer. And then we've got some stuff from the fine young folk at Glasgow Youth Film Festival who are going to be talking us a bit through the programme that they've been working on for the f- festival, which returns later this month. And then after we have given them adequate warning that the youth portion of the podcast is over, we're going to talk a lot about big, gnarly David Cronenberg films because he's got a new one out, Crimes of the Future, which is out in a week's time. But before we get into any of that, uh, Jamie... Do you have any things that you have been watching, say, from the recent Edinburgh Film Festival? Yes, I mean, that's all I've been doing, really, because, well, The Fringe has been on, so I've been watching, like, tons of comedy and theatre, and then I saw a few things at uh, EIFF. So I I think I might just pick out my favourite film. I saw it, it was Full Time, um, uh, the French film by uh, Eric Gravel, or Gravel, I guess it is. Um, Yeah, this was, this is basically... A Ken Loach film or a Darden brother, but with a bit of extra, you know. So it's it's like about kind of modern labour and kind of late capitalism society. It follows this kind of woman who's a single mother of two kids, and she lives outside of Paris in this kind of little village um, because she doesn't want to bring up her kids in the city. But because she lives so far outside, she relies on public transport, and she has to travel ages to get um, to do a job. And it's not a kind of great job. She's like a, the head maid at a kind of flash hotel, and she has to kind of rely on a neighbour to look take after the kids. So it's not a great situation, but that becomes even worse when there's a transit strike happens in Paris as as uh, the, the prisons are, or the French are, want to do. And uh, yeah, this turns her life into basically a nightmare because she can't get to work. She's also trying to um, get a job interview for a better job. And it's all kind of happening at the same time. Now, if that was the film, it would actually have been a pretty good, decent, real, realist film, I think. But what makes it a great film is that it's shot like a James Bourne, uh, a Jason Bourne thriller. <laughs> it's, it's like it's, it's totally nail biting. So everything from making the kids breakfast to catching the train to making it to the interview is all shot like a thriller. It's like it's like really quickly cut. It's got this kind of pulsating um, score over the top of it. I've heard it described as uncut gems for single mums, and that's what it is. <laughs> it's like this woman who's constantly under pressure, just trying to just do her daily task. And I think MD who's you know, been in a rush or had a deadline or, you know, had a really busy day will relate to this because that is, is, that's, that's the feeling. It, it gives you the feeling of 
just being exhausted and being sort of just a little bit too late for everything and a bit too much on your plate. Um, yeah, and it's also a kind of great comment on the modern world, you know. Uh, so yeah, a uh, really good film. It sounds a little bit like uh, Boiling Point, except more fun, from what I'm hearing. Yeah, well, Boiling Point is that, that's kind of one shot. Um, yeah. Kind of kitchen film. Yeah, this is, I guess that's the same idea. It's taking, I guess, a normal day, but turning yeah. it into like a Hollywood thriller. You know, it's like everything she does is completely ordinary that everybody who has to commute to work you know does or yeah. who, who does like has a, a kind of tough job does but it, it, it kind of elevates it to kind of a blockbuster you know so yeah really cool uh yeah i, I really enjoyed it uh full time is that it's called full time does it have a uk release uh not yet lined up? but it's the kind of film i could imagine maybe playing at the french film festival perhaps um or but it, yeah i can imagine it getting a release it's it, it would sort of play really well with an audience i think yeah. um really fun uh, it stars uh, Laura Callamam. <laughs> Sorry, Laura Callamy, who's uh, she's off of Call Your Agent, so she's kind of a well-known kind of star if you're into that TV show. Um, so yeah, I could see it playing quite well somewhere at Filmhouse. So good stuff. Well, we'll keep an eye out for full time. Um, in the fullness of time, classic segue. Classic Cine Skinny. Uh, Lewis, what have you been watching? Uh, I've watched uh, the first few episodes of A League of Their Own, which is a new series on Prime Video. It's the adaptation of the 90s baseball film. It, it follows the sort of first um, women's league of American baseball after World War II, when all the men are away at war and they still need entertainment, they still need sport. Um, I really like, it's like immediately gripped me. I, I've not finished it yet, so you might have to ask me again how it is in two weeks, but like... It's it's just got it's so stylish. It's so it's got great sort of jazz and blues playing and it's it's not too gratuitous. It's really like classy baseball action, but also really interesting social points. They introduce a an anti-racist subplot that wasn't in the original film. The entire thing is executive produced by Abby Jacobson, who also stars. She's the star and executive producer of Broad City, which is one of my favorite sitcoms. It pops up on Prime sometimes. It's not always on Prime. If you've not seen it, check it out. But um, I'm really pleased with it, really interested in it. I think everyone should check it out. Is it more of a drama or a comedy? Because the, the original film was funny, but it was much more of a drama, wasn't it? Okay. Yeah, I would say that this is like, it's it's kind of comedic. Abby Jacobson is very much the same sort of nerdy weirdo that she is in Broad City, but it definitely has dark moments. It like, there are pretty explicit examples of misogyny and racism throughout, um, which, you know, means that I think that there'll be some people who'll find it maybe a bit too harsh, maybe a bit too troubling, but um, at the same time, it ultimately has like quite a fun, free, lighthearted tone. So it's a, it's a bit in the middle. I wouldn't say it's comedic, maybe just sort of like, I don't know, optimistic and, and nice. We can agree it's probably better than that James Corden. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> with the same, which really annoys me because every time that's on, I think, oh, I might watch uh, A League of Their Own because I haven't seen that in years. And it turns out to be uh, a James really terrible show with like Jamie Redknapp and some yeah. other guy. Is A League of Their Own just question of sport, but again? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Just to clarify. Slightly that. more annoying. Yeah, or a bit like Top Gear because they always do like little stunts instead of just asking questions, I believe. Oh, who decided question of sport and Top Gear needed to be melded together? Jesus Christ. Well, I can guarantee that this League of Their Own is 100% James Corden free. Nice. And that's a Cine Skinny guarantee you can take to the bank. They'll ask you why you're there, but you can still take it there. Um, I haven't really been watching anything. I've just been at fringe shows and lying on the sofa, so I can't contribute much to this. 
So Favorite maybe, fringe act? Uh, a tie between Olga Koch and Mr. Chonkos, mm-hmm. the clowning man with the funny mustache and lots of little hats. It was a weird fringe where there was multiple acts that did uh, smaller and smaller hat gags, multiple acts referencing the same Van Gogh painting. It's really weird. It's like everyone has been, it's almost as if everyone's been stuck inside looking for the few cultural references that everyone will understand after two and a half years of stuck in their house. And they've settled (laughs) on hats. So fair play, you know. There was also Vigo Venn who had a skit where he would continually remove high-vis jackets. And there was just a more grubby one under each one. I felt really bad for him because he was sweating buckets by the end of that. He was in a very small room in the Banshee Labyrinth, which if you know anything about Edinburgh is like ostensibly a haunted pub, but is essentially a very dank pub. And he was in the cinema room, which is all this like bonquette seating with about 40 people in front of him. He came on stage about probably about like eight inches wider in circumference than he was when he finished because he just would not stop taking off different uh, high-vis fluorescent vests that were all like layered underneath each other. And by the time he got to the bottom, that thing was grotty. <laughs> not good. But um, yeah, Vigo Van Olcock, uh, Mr. Chonkos, various other people. It's been quite a good fringe. It's probably a different podcast to discuss <laughs> more of the Edinburgh Fringe. So I feel like this is a good time to move on. Cut to... First of the films we're going to talk about today, that was a little gap, so I could put a little bit of music in. <laughs> um, so the first of the films we're going to talk about today is Ride the Wave, which is a new documentary by Martin Robertson, and it follows Ben Larg, who is this kind of like, at the start of the film, he's like kind of 10, 11-year-old surfer who's from Tyree, and it's all about going from his like childhood beginnings as a competitive surfer to his kind of teenage aspirations of riding capital B, capital W, big waves off the coast of Ireland. Film kind of follows Ben and his family over a number of years. And I believe it first played at, is it Glasgow Film Festival it first played at? I believe so, yeah. It definitely played there. I'm not sure if that was its world premiere, but it definitely played there. Yeah, because I remember the publicity shots of the kid with the surfboard, thinking there's not going to be two kid with surfboard documentaries out in the same year. So, Ride the Wave, Jamie, what did you think? Um, this wasn't unenjoyable, but I did find it quite an unfocused film. Um, it begins like we're going to watch a film about this young Scottish lad, like you say, called Ben Larg, who's going to become this great surfer. And it looks like it's going to be a kind of David and Goliath story. And in fact, somebody actually even calls it that uh, in the film. Because it's, you know, he's this young kid who's like, I think he's just like, is he 13, 14? I can't remember what age he is, but he's, he's competing against like 18 year olds, you know, these kind of proper guys with like moustaches and stuff and he's this kind of little scrawny kid and he looks t- tiny on the board you know and tiny against the waves and he's a, you know it's just a little twig of a guy um so it seems it's going to be a bit this like amazing kid who's going to sort of grow up to be a great surfer and it does follow some of his competitions but actually the film sort of loses interest in him as a surfer or a competitive surfer anyway um and it becomes more about his home life like halfway through it sort of just changes gear and it seems to like surfing then becomes like a kind of metaphor for him growing up or facing his challenges and escaping kind of small town or small island life on Tyree or something like that um, and I felt the film was just a little bit muddled about what it wanted to be or what it was trying to say um, and I guess that's because it was a film made over quite a long time like it was like you, you actually see him grow up from being like a you know preteen to being like a, a, a you know almost a grown man so so what did take a while to make and I feel like the, the filmmaker probably the idea of his film probably changed over time, I would imagine. Um, 
but but both 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 are good. I think like uh, it would have been nice to have a kind of triumphant sort of sports movie following this kid's career, or it could have been a darker film about being this kind of outsider kid who's being bullied and wants to escape that through surfing. But what you end up is with something that's a bit of both, and I kind of felt that both stories weren't sort of satisfyingly kind of tied together. Uh, I don't know if I'm doing. I actually completely agree. I think that the problem with it is that it really struggles most doc- i think all documentaries i've seen are either about people who have already passed away or people who are grown-ups and that doesn't make them better because there's more stuff that's happened in their life it makes it better because after more time you have a better amount of hindsight and it's easier to see the narrative in someone's life so you're right in that it doesn't really know whether or not it's a sort of dark and brooding film about the difficulties of growing up or an optimistic film about finding your passion because both are happening and when I was like 15, 16 I couldn't tell you what the narrative of my life up until that point was. It's particularly egregious in the earlier parts of the film where you know like you said it's also it's not unenjoyable there's loads of great cinematography for it it'll really sort of take you away but in those first few scenes of the film like I think he's I can't how is he at the beginning of the film like 12 13 14 and and you know, the, he gets asked these questions like, are you nervous for the upcoming competition? Or what What do you plan on doing after surfing? And he sort of goes, oh, I don't know. He kind of gives really sort of like non-committal answers because he's like a 14-year-old kid. Like he doesn't know. <laughs> you put a camera in his face and you're asking him all these questions that like most 14-year-olds don't think about. And um, yeah, like when I was 14, I probably would not have been up for like deciding what my life was going to be like. And I think that it does get better as the documentary goes on and we get a better, like, he grows up and knows himself a little bit better. But the thing about it is that he's a really, really good surfer. That doesn't necessarily mean he wants to be, like, the star of a documentary or anything like that. So I think that they make a really good documentary out of what it is, but what it is is not the best subject matter for a documentary at the time. You know, I'm, I don't doubt that he has like a really fascinating life and there's definitely some messages there. It's just that it can sometimes, you know, the, the parents do a lot of the talking, which is really interesting considering it's a film about him. I mean, you're totally right. Like, I, I really like, I mean, that's probably the best part of the film. I think actually more interesting to me than the serpent was his kind of bond with his dad. I thought mm-hmm. it was really sweet. His dad's this kind of dork mm-hmm. who uh, is a bit clueless, I think, and, and, and sort of not, because he's at the start of the film, he's he's kind of his coach, but he doesn't seem to know that much. Mm-hmm. And his idea of like psyching him up for this big, massive event uh, in, in Japan is, do you want to play some dire straits? <laughs> you know, that, that's his kind of solution to the sports coaching. Um, and actually there's a lovely scene where they do play Dire Straits later, so I don't want to bag on mm-hmm. uh, Dire Straits because they're kind of cool. But but you know, he's like he's just like a, a kind of dork, and he's like he tries to talk to him about about, um, about girls he might fancy, and you know, it's just get, like little sweet moments like that. And you do feel for the parents actually because I think they don't know what to do with this kid because he's he's talented, mm-hmm. but like I say, he's really shy, and he's also having a really tough time at school because I, I presume he's just getting bullied because other kids are jealous of him that he's getting to fly around yeah. the world doing these cool events. Um, but, but like I say, it doesn't really focus in on one thing. It sort of doesn't, to me anyway, tell any of the stories that satisfyingly. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, so I'd love to, if it was just a story about a dad and his son and the dad trying to do the best for his son, that would have been really great. And there's bits of that in the, in the film, but not enough for me. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's a film that is trying to tell multiple different stories because really there's one about his kind of like surf journey from being in one specific kind of like competitive environment into one where it's more about like pushing yourself individually just for the sake of it. There's also a story about a kid that's having a really tough time and is growing into himself 
It's also a story about the family and the sacrifices that they make in order for this kid to be able to do the things that he's interested in doing. When you combine all these things together, I think it does have that documentary issue that Lewis was kind of alluding to, which is that you start making a film about somebody, you don't know how it's going to end. But when so much of the premise of the film is based around the passage of time, like presumably the part of the pitch for this is that like, oh, we're going to follow this young kid who is like a prospective surf champion. It's Jackie Bird pops up right at the start being like, is this kid about to do for surfing what Andy Murray did for tennis? And it's like, well, I would guess no. And it turns out it's not a spoiler to say no. I did appreciate that the documentary became, for me, in its most interesting parts, not about an Andy Murray, someone who is the best in the world because of a kind of like terrifyingly efficient training regime and loads of natural talent. It was about a kid who really wants to do something and is committed to it and the family who are trying to like help him do that and keep him on like the right path mm -hmm. to get that done. I think those are like the strongest parts of it. There's also, as you said, some really good like surf cinematography. And there's one bit which I have dubbed in the notes, the Eldritch surf poem from primary three, <laughs> which kind of marks the turning point in the film. This like 14, 15 year old kid standing by the wall in the kitchen and he points at this framed laminated poem that he wrote and he says, oh, I think I must have written this when I was in like, when I was like six or seven. And it goes something along the lines of, I was walking towards the waves when a shadowy green figure appeared behind me and said, you will die. And I was like, geez, oh, Ben, Ben, <laughs> Ben, buddy, Ben, come on, Ben, Ben. But it's like tell it, me more about this eldritch <laughs> surf horror. Yeah, but like, then, yeah. then the film almost like promises it's going to be a snuff film because there's a whole section. That, the last section basically is about this kid trying to ride the biggest wave in I don't know, not the world, but like this huge wave in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> there's all these stories about people who have had their neck broken and like their legs snapped. And this little kid looks terrified. But then does he have to do it because the the documentary filmmaker needs an ending? And yeah. this, this would be a really cool ending if you do this big. If you surf this big wave. It, it's something that I, I worry about with like, you know, these narratives that may or may not appear as a documentary and that you're trying to capture. Sometimes it can like, you can wind up putting a little bit of pressure on the real human people around you. Mm. There's one part that I think is particularly egregious where um, he is telling the story of how he got bullied and he uses very minimal details and doesn't actually reveal a lot, followed immediately by a cut to his mother where she says, he won't tell you the real story, and then she gives all the details. And I wonder, maybe he doesn't want those details shared, but being young as he is, it can be kind of difficult to, you know, make that known, or you might want to go along with the filmmaker. So I just think that, you know, there's definitely, like I say, messages to be learned, and there's a great anti-bullying moral there. But really, when it's about your, when, when it's a film about someone's trauma, it should really come from their mouth rather than anyone else. Yeah. And and also, I mean, they, they, they labor the fact that he's doing this kind of big wave and is it a metaphor for grown up or mm -hmm. something? I just feel like it's never, it was never, it's a great visual idea. Like this young kid riding a wave who's been bullied and, and having a tough time. And it seems like the sport isn't going that well for him. Because they just kind of don't mention why he's not in competitions anymore. Mm -hmm. So you get the sense that it's not went well, but he can still do this. He can call, still ride a wave and it's going to give him sort of some autonomy in his life. But, but it's never really articulated what, why, what he's trying to achieve. And like you say, it's because the kid is not really articulated. He's, he's not, I guess he doesn't know himself, maybe, or he's not willing to share it. 
Um, so yeah, it's it's what I found more enjoyable about that last subplot about him riding his first big wave because it's more about just him and his passion, and that's much more enjoyable to watch than what is at, at the first part of the film a very confused and unfocused series of subplots where. I feel like a director is trying to cobble together disparate parts of a young life that have not fully come together. Yeah, it's an interesting one. And uh, if you have questions about the making of the film, the good news is that the director, Martin Robertson, is doing a Q&A screening on Saturday the 10th of September at the GFT. So if you want to get down and ask him some questions, much like these ones we have, there's your opportunity to do it. Yeah, one thing I kind of like is if he came back and just kept doing this every once in a while. You know, like Michael Apsel did with like the 7-Up and just follow this kid and see what his life's like. If he yeah. does become a surfer, if he changes his life and does something else, that could be quite interesting. Because it's almost got that kind of boyhood thing of following a kid over several years, which is really cool. But yeah, maybe... He seems like a really cool kid. Yeah. He seems yeah. really skilled at what he does yeah. and very courageous. <laughs> yeah. So definitely like, you know, a, a worthy person to kind of like tell the story off yeah and a story that probably has some more legs in it to be revisited mm -hmm. at a later date but ride the wave is yeah in cinemas from the 9th of september and there's a screening on the 10th at the gft with a q a with director martin robertson so if that sounds like your kind of bag check it out okay from one kid doing good things to some other kids doing good things um, we have been in touch with the folk from Glasgow Youth Film Festival who are going to give us a little insight into the programme for this year's GYFF, which runs from the 16th to the 18th of September. Before we cut to them, Jamie, do you just want to give us a tiny little bit of background on GYFF and what it is? Yeah, it's just this really cool initiative that's been going for at least a decade now, I think. It's been going for a while, It's uh, and it was one of the first of its kind sort of festivals where it's programmed entirely by young people aged, I think I think the kids this year range sort of 15 to 19, sort of late teens. So they do everything, they do the programming, they sort of help put the brochure together, they usually do interviews and things like that with uh, visiting guests. Yeah, it's just a really cool idea, a way to get young kids into film programming really and, and film exhibition and sort of teach them some of the skills, how to do it. And also they just program films like for younger audiences that they are interested in so it's a whole mix of stuff so there's newer things uh, i'm sure as the kids will tell you like uh, for example angry young men which is like a really cool uh um scottish gangster film but it's kind of like a comedic um and then it's but also showing things like uh, moulin rouge you know so like it's it's sort of, pro sort of modern classics with kind of newer films and yeah it's a really nice program and a good bunch of kids Good stuff, so we're gonna hear from that good bunch of kids now. Hello, this is the Young Programmer speaking from Glasgow Youth Film Festival, a festival being held this September at the GFT. We have slowly been curating this festival over the summer and we're really looking forward to showing it to you. We'd like to thank our sponsor, The Skinny, for letting us onto their podcast to tell you about it. We're very grateful and I'm about to pass it on to the next programmer. Our opening gala this year is See How They Run. This is an amazing murder mystery film with Saoirse Ronan and Adrian Brody in it. Our documentary for this year is A Bunch of Amateurs, which is about old people making films in a film club. We're going to have the director and producer here to do an interview. 
Our Saturday night film is the second ever screening of Angry Young Men with a Q&A from director Paul Morris. And our closing gala is the spectacular, spectacular Moulin Rouge with some secret surprises. Hope to see you there. You can buy tickets at the Glasgow Film website. All tickets cost £6. And the festival is on from the 16th of September to the 18th of September. What a good bunch of kids, eh? Lovely stuff. So that was um, the programme was from GYFF. So that runs at Glasgow Film Theatre from the 16th to the 18th of September. Some interesting new stuff and some classics of the genre. The genre being film. <laughs> classics of those films. Those good films. You know, Lewis, the good films. The <laughs> ones we all like. So yeah, that's GYFF. Check it out and you can get full details on everything and get tickets at uh, the glasgowfilm.org website. This is fair warning for all the children in the audience to maybe leave now because things are about to take an abrupt tonal shift from uh, young lads on surfboards to people with just stuff coming out of their bodies. So David Cronenberg, everyone's favourite body horror nutcase, uh, is back with a new film which we'll be discussing shortly. But before we do that, we thought we would have a brief go through a pick around the innards of the David Cronenberg filmography. But before we start, and I'll let Jamie swallow the water that I very ungraciously talked right the way through you trying to hydrate. Um, Jamie, do you just want to give us a very brief precy on the life and times of David Cronenberg? Uh, sure, I haven't prepared this, but yeah, uh, definitely. Um, well, he's a you know he's Canadian, so that makes him a little bit different already. He's not like he's he's got a very interesting sensibility, and in that his films are deeply intellectual, but they're also kind of obsessed with the body, and the corporeal, uh, uh, which means he's been able to move into things like the horror genre really well. And he's, I guess he's most famous for uh, body body horror. Like he's probably the, the kind of premier example of that. Um, so he started making films. I believe in the kind of mid 70s, a lot of kind of small, weird films from Canada, films like Rabid and Shivers. Um, and then he moved into Hollywood. He made uh, Scanners, which was like a, I think that was a Stephen King adaptation, I want to say. Uh, and he made another Stephen King adaptation called uh, Dead Zone. And then from then on, he's been kind of, he became quite a big director, uh, making films like The Fly. Uh, he, he's, he's caused controversy throughout his career. For example, Crash played a. Um, can and was uh, sort of vilified and it was banned in the UK I think um, or it was given sort of crazy like you know 18 ratings everywhere um, and then he's became sort of I guess a kind of elder statesman of uh, filmmaking now like uh, he's, 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 his films have become less extreme I think uh, in recent years but maybe more classy so he's been doing things like um, like Eastern Promises and The History of Violence which are much more kind of like Straight, I guess in the way straightforward narrative films, adaptations of books and things like that, but they are also full of his kind of weird ideas about sex and violence and the body. Um, yeah, so he's a fascinating filmmaker. Um, his films are really smart, but also really gross and disgusting and sexy. So yeah, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a favorite of um, cinephiles because I think he's a, he's a really kind of so, like solid filmmaker like like I think you could say that his run from like the late 70s to the kind of mid 90s is like immaculate really it was like like his films are great so um I won't spoil anything by saying I don't think that run continues right up till now but, uh, <laughs> but yeah fascinating filmmaker we will talk now about one film each from the Cronenberg universe 
that we think is good and interesting. So shall we do shall we do them in chronological order? Sure. We're gonna talk about first, come back to you, Jamie, and we'll talk about the brood. Yes. So the brood, nineteen seventy nine, still working in Canada at this point. What's the brood about? What's it like? How freaky are we talking? Um well for me the brood is probably the scariest and best of his early films that he made in the late seventies. You know, because yeah, like yeah, like I say, after this, this is after this, he basically moves to America and starts to make bigger films. But this is like still very kind of scrappy and grubby, um, and it follows uh, a wacko therapist called Doctor Hal Regal, um, who's played by Oliver Reed, who's invented this miraculous new form of uh, psychiatry where he can cure patients miraculously overnight. Um, and one of these patients is Nola. She was kind of his, his favourite patient, basically. She's like the perfect example of someone who's been cured from all neurosis through his technique. But Nola's husband, Frank, is very suspicious of what's going on in the clinic because Oliver Reed's character is super suspicious looking to start off with. He's, he, wears a po- <laughs> he wears a polo neck and a leather jacket. So that's that's a sign that he's evil. Um, <laughs> does he have the little glasses as well? He doesn't have glasses. If, uh, does he have glasses? I can't remember now. A goatee? Uh, he doesn't have a goatee. He's just like he's classic Oliver Reed, <laughs> like late stage Oliver Reed, kind of big and burly, but he's also kind of very whispery, kind of talks in a very quiet way, and yeah, any 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 uh, pretends that he's his technique is he pretends they're his father of his patients, and he kind of like uh, yeah, it's it's very Freudian, it's very weird, it's very Cronenberg, um, but also he kind of locks up the patients; they're not allowed to talk to their family because that would destroy the process. So it's kind of like a cult, basically. He's surrounded by all these. Uh, you know, these people, and he's this kind of messiah figure. Um, but also, while this is all happening, strangely, a lot of people close to uh, Nola start to get attacked by these strange little children who have, uh, <laughs> have like, sort of old people's faces, and they wear little jumpsuits, little colourful jumpsuits. Um, so first of all, her, her mother gets bludgeoned in the kitchen, and then her ex-husband gets killed, and a few other people, um, and they also steal Nola's kid. Uh, the kidnapper. Um, so Frank is just trying to investigate what's going on. What, what the hell's happening? Why can't I get to my wife? And why are these children murdering all the people close to her? Um, now, it turns out, this is a bit of a spoiler, but it turns out these children are the manifestation of her trauma. She's like giving birth to all the things that uh, like have hurt her and they go out into the world and kill all the things of uh, her. So like, you know, her, her mother was like, Treat her badly when she's young, so she's dead. You know, her her ex husband was a dick. You're gonna go. So like, uh, yeah, it's like it's a fascinating idea. It's kind of like a satire on psychiatry, really. I think it, it it's you know, for all that this woman is creating the monster, she's not the monster. It's, it's Oliver Reed's character who's the monster, who's who's sort of who's sort of manipulating her, and it's suggesting that psychiatry is maybe, uh, what's the word, you know. Well, he explores psychiatry. Psychiatry is something he's interested in. He, he made a film about Freud, The Dangerous Method, and he's sort of, I think he's sceptical of it, shall we say. Um, mm-hmm. uh, or he's, inter- he's interested in sort of the dynamic between patients and uh, doctors, and he explores it really interestingly. Yeah. But it's also just super scary. Like, these kids are freaky. They just, like, because they're tiny, you think, oh, they're not scary, but they kind of jump out in covers. They just appear from anywhere. The the young daughter wears the same kind of jumpsuit, so it's got that kind of little, a lot of good jump scares where you think it's the little daughter who's just by the side and it turns out to be these, one of these little creepy dwarf things. Um, so it's very scary. Kind of kind of like, I would say, moving as well. Like, it's like, it's it's not just all horror. And I think that's why he's 
an interesting director is he makes these horror films but there is more to it it's not just about scaring you it's sort of making you think and he's saying something about the modern world um, and it's got Oliver Reed being batshit crazy so yeah it's a good one I would say so that was 1979 and then so then Scanners is kind of like a middle between so I think that was I think he did still make that in Canada and apparently according to wikipedia.org um the production of it was quite interesting because there was all this money going around as kind of like tax breaks for making films in Canada. So they had to get the film into production really quickly in order to get the money, which meant he was turning up in the morning and writing the scenes that were in the afternoon. So Scanners is... Is it Stephen King or did I get that wrong? Uh, I don't believe it is Stephen King. Stephen I think it's based on a couple of Cronenberg scripts kind of mashed together. Yeah, it feels like Stephen King. It's, it's about like sort of mind-bending and things like that yeah so in the same way in a similar vein to the brood which is about uh, people's uh, internal worries becoming external scanners is about a group of people with telepathic abilities and about a shadowy private military company that is trying to harness those powers unfortunately in news that no one could have seen coming one of these uh, telepathic people has gone rogue so they have to get another one who discovers that he is also a scanner to help track down the baddie. So Cameron Vale is your good scanner, who at the start of the film is living this kind of like transient life, staying away from people as much as he can because he can't control these kind of like telepathic and um, mind-melding abilities. So he's your goodie, played by Stephen Lack. And then Revik is the baddie, uh, who is fully in command of his brain powers, played by Michael Ironside, everyone's favorite. Um, and he is the rogue who does the thing that everybody knows about Scanners, which is the scene where Michael Ironside's character makes a man's head explode. Now, body horror for the lads, honk, 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 let's go. On the one hand, this film is a, like an exploration of pain and how people deal with pain. Uh, so we're talking like lots of big anguished expressions on everyone's faces, lots of weird and intense noises, loads of like, industrial humming on the soundtrack. Michael Ironside keeps purring. Um, but it's also really interesting as a comment on the way that society treats people that doesn't fully understand. Like, there's this underground community of the people who have this ability, and they all try and help each other out, but they're constantly being, like, chased down, or either being chased down to be destroyed, or chased down to be kind of weaponized to be used against other people. Like, stylistically, it sits somewhere between, like, a sci-fi horror and a 1970s conspiracy thriller in that there's lots of lads in brown jackets standing around talking to each other for long periods. Lots of people meeting each other in train stations and saying, we're going to have to do something about X and then walking off, only to reappear at a different train station 15 minutes later. And the thing about Scanners that everybody knows is this is the one where the guy's head blows up and it still looks great. It looks so good when the guy's... Um, and then there's some other really intense, grisly body horror stuff. There's a, a scene where a guy basically gets cooked from the inside out. There's lots of stuff with like kind of melting things and like people's arms going really strained, like weird and puffy. And oh, it's very, it's very good. Really intense, really grisly. I will say that it's not the most like it has a very particular air to it. Now, is that a deliberately stilted air to kind of help manifest some of these internal struggles, or is it simply bad acting? Who can tell? Some of like, particularly like the the pained face acting is quite uh, is a bit of a mixed bag. 
reminds me a lot of that video game L.A. Noir, if anyone yes. remembers that. <laughs> where, like, the whole thing with L.A. Noir was it's like a cop thriller, and it was all really, like, meticulously motion-captured. But the problem is, if you tell, like, video game-caliber actors to act like they have doubt, then they all mug really hard. Because if you have no other cues to go by and you have to pick between, like, doubt, believe, or accuse of being a murderer, then they really have to mug quite hard in order for you to understand. And there's a little bit of that to my eye in Scanners, where it's like, act as if you've got a thousand knives stabbing you in the kidneys. It's like, maybe take 10, 20% off, lads, <laughs> come on. That's the thing about the early films, they're always like populated by sort of, sometimes quite bad sort of bit player, like TV actors from Canada, or, and then you'll get like a, like a British thess being thrown in. So like Patrick McGoon is in Scanners, isn't he? He's like, yeah. he plays one of the kind of uh, good guy. He's a good guy, I actually quite remember. And then Michael Ironside is just like fantastic. He's like sort of yeah. chewing the scenery. He's like as most kind of Michael Ironside. And the thing about Michael Ironside is like, he is so good in this, but he also makes uh, Stephen Lack look absolutely dreadful at acting, which I quite like as a kind of dynamic. It gives you a clue about like the one who is properly tearing up, he's the baddie. And the one who looks as confused as the rest of us, he's the goodie. It is a bit all over the place, but it's a really interesting film. And again, I think that's the thing that you were saying about The Brood, where Cronenberg's able to do this thing where he can make what are essentially really gnarly genre films that are actually making serious points about society in one way or another. Thinking about things of like, when is having a gift actually a curse? What can your body do that you don't fully understand? ideas which we might end up exploring in the fullness of this episode of the podcast but who's to say um so that's scanners uh, and then after scanners which is kind of like a breakthrough hit for david cronenberg he then yeah as jim was saying moved more into like the american system while he's not exactly like a super flash like hollywood director he went on to make the fly mm-hmm. a film which i primarily know for uh, that kind of image macro of jeff goldblum lying side on with his top off. Am I thinking of the right film? You may be thinking of Is Jurassic, Park. Yeah, Jurassic Park. I thought there was a scene in... Um... He does, he, he he gets naked in, in The Fly. Oh, yeah, a couple of times, yeah. I think. He's yeah. like, that his kind of sex in, his, sexy yes. in The Fly? It, it's one of Jeff Goldblum's most interesting roles and one of Cronenberg's uh, most celebrated films. Um, it won an Oscar for practical effects so that what you're talking about, the sort of things blowing up in skin looking weird and gross, that's really like popping off here. But um, in case you didn't know the story, because it's quite well known, I should think, it's, uh, it follows this charismatic, quirky, charming, sexy, ambitious scientist, Seth Brundle, played by Jeff Goldblum, who's created a matter transporter that can transport matter from one booth to another. And he sort of gets involved with uh, Gina Davis, who plays a scientific journalist who's going to be covering his work, and they sort of fall in love. But... Um, he winds up inadvertently transporting himself whilst a housefly is in the booth with him and the DNA kind of integrates itself into his DNA. So over time, he slowly transforms into a horrifying monster flyman. It is so gross, for one. It is really, really about the the, the decay of the body, about aging, about changing, about how horrible it is. Plenty of scenes where Jeff Goldblum, who up until this point has been so sexy and charming, now looking at himself in the mirror as his hair falls out and his fingernails fall off and he starts, like, spitting out enzymes that boil down his food. Um, but the thing about it is that The Fly was an adaptation of a film from the, 19, uh, from the 1950s. And 
it, structurally, it never really leaves that sort of hammer horror B movie schlockiness in that, like, you do have to suspend your dis disbelief quite a bit because, sure, this scientist who has been given infinite resources to work in complete seclusion and answer to nobody is also, like, very cool and sexy. And Gina Davis has this insane personal problem where her boss at the magazine is also her ex-partner slash stalker. Um, so just, like very convenient for all these characters to be rolled up together and also very sort of theatrical and melodramatic and i think that you know with um with the brood there is that sort of stereotype of the the freudian sort of sleazy shrink so i think that cronenberg is still at this point like using old film tropes maybe structurally and it never really the fly never really escapes from that but he takes it and does such a good job with it it is such an enchanting film excuse me such an enchanting film from the get-go like the opening shot i think is just jeff goldblum's face and it's the first time we meet him and he's just talking and pulling us into his world and his ambition and uh it's what makes it really tragic is that he takes such a long time to get to the schlocky science fiction fictionness of it like he really develops the relationship between these characters they really feel in love they're fleshed out as individuals and as a relationship and it's a really long time before we get our first example of like graphic imagery, which is when we test the the pods and he turns a baboon inside out. And it's one of the worst, it's so bad. And then we just move right back on and it's back to their relationship. So it's a really, really gradual change. The amount of forms that Goldblum's character takes, the amount of different makeup techniques they use to sort of chronicle his transformation, it's it's so gradual and, you know, it, it can stand for a lot of things. At the time, lots of people suggested that it might have been about the AIDS crisis because, you know, the character Seth Brundle himself describes it as a cancer that manifests. It manifests as a cancer that grows within him. It might be contagious, he doesn't know. Um, but Cronenberg then replied saying well he was aware of that and he would never begrudge that interpretation of it but he just thought about it as a personal as something that everyone goes through the state of aging the horror of the body changing but also there's this really fascinating sort of feminist read of it where gina davis has totally fallen for this guy and is still getting over this really harrowing unsettling relationship that she's been in where he has the key her ex has the key to her apartment and refuses to give it up which is just like change your locks call the police that's like the red flag to end all red flags mm -hmm. um and then this thing sort of happens again because jeff goldblum changes psychologically as well like he becomes far more sinister and says like I don't know if I can stop myself from hurting you because it's changing me psychologically as well. That doesn't end as well because that, that that's not as polished a, a subplot, that's not as polished a read of, of the, the film, but it really is just sort of Cronenberg doing his thing, doing the, the nastiness, the horribleness of the human body and how sex factors into that, but also science and special effects. It's It's a real... It's a real exercise in practical effects, but also just like a really well-written, really well-acted film. Yeah, it's kind of like a, almost like a superhero movie as well, mm -hmm. like, or, or a critique of it, because it's a bit like, you know, like Spider-Man or something. Like the, the Initially, mm -hmm. the, mixing his DNA with the fly makes him a Superman. He can climb walls, he can uh, break people's arms by mm -hmm. arm wrestling, he makes him super strong, super, he can, you know, he's like, yeah, he feels like a million dollars. Um, 
and it you know it improves sex life like all sorts and then yeah it's like this is the reality of if your dna is would could, if the sci-fi thing of your dna could be meshed with another animal you would become that animal and what mm-hmm. would it be like to become a fly and it takes all that grossness of it yeah like i love all that like like the way that he <laughs> spits up on his food so he can eat it, it yeah it's, it's like a really interesting potent idea that you know, it's, but, but it's like you say, very pulpy. Mm-hmm. But he explores it in a very intellectual way. I think it, it, like it, sort of he moves back and forth so much between uh, interpretations of this. So, like again, when he first sort of mutates, it makes him really athletic and and energized, and he starts like pressuring other people to go through the process as well. And then we visit him later, and he looks visibly unwell and he's freaking out and his apartment is and we just keep following Gina Davis at this point in the film from the second half onward it's just Gina Davis we follow as she repeatedly returns and he's decayed worse and or transformed more and more but sometimes we come and even though he's worse than he was before he seems totally chill with it he's like oh I recognize now that this is just a transformation that I need to go through and he sort of like continues making his little quips and jokes and stuff like that as he crawls up and down the walls so I think it's it speaks to the complexity of the character and how well Jeff Goldblum can act even when he's under a thousand tons of prosthesis but just a a good film for most of the people involved in it yeah yeah and it's I think that these three films kind of showcase the main points of the Cronenberg verse the Cronenverse if you will um which are kind of like genre tropes but explored in an intellectual way a real like love for and desire to confront people with like physical effects and yeah a pulp sensibility that isn't afraid to get intellectual but also extremely like gnarly and gross yeah it's your body turning against you is really mm-hmm. the theme that runs throughout his films and a kind of suspicion of science you know it's usually scientists or doctors who are the bad guys in his films who are like up to no good you know so like or, or make the mistakes that cause their downfall and they're often in situations where they're either thinking they're either being deliberately nefarious or it seems like more often than not it's the kind of science run amok thing mm-hmm. that you get and it, that kind of goes back to as you were saying lewis earlier films where a lot of those tropes come from your kind of like post-nuclear age thing of like the scientist just wanted to help but then he shot them all in a ma- out of a massive cannon by mistake <laughs> but what's interesting is he's not a luddite about it. he's not saying like science is bad necessarily and he's not also even saying that the the transformation of your body is bad necessarily like it's always ambiguous like like i say sometimes it's good you know like mm-hmm. there's, there's there's good points and bad points about these transformations and i think that's what he explores also in uh, crimes of the future absolutely delightful segue jamie um but before we move on to crimes of the future we just wanted to say that a bunch of the classic cronenbergs are getting re-released either on digital or in cinemas or a combination of both so we'll run through those very quickly so rabid from 1977 is coming on Mubi on the 9th of september the brood is coming on on the 3rd of october scanners on the 26th of october and naked lunch which is that the burrows adaptation mm-hmm. yeah yeah uh, on the 12th of November and then from the 19th and 22nd of September uh, the Filmhouse in Edinburgh are showing Dead Ringers, Videodrome, Yeesh and uh, The Fly. So plenty of Cronenberg to check out as well as Crimes of the Future which we will discuss after this short musical interlude. Okay so Crimes of the Future I will 
briefly outline the plot before asking Lewis what he thought. Okay. So, Sol Tenso and Caprice, who are played by Viggo Mortensen and Leah Seydoux, are a pair of performance artists in a future where humans have evolved beyond pain and numerous other physiological and psychological things that currently afflict humanity. Saul is growing lots of new strange organs and Caprice is cutting them out in front of uh, live studio audiences. They meet the staff of the new National Organ Registry, who are played by Kristen Stewart and Don McKellar, and over time we dig deeper into this world of gnarly body mods, psychosexual drama, H.R. Geiger-esque pieces of medical technology, and dank underground art studios. It falls very much in the mould of the things we just talked about, but Lewis, what did you think of Crimes of the Future? Yeah, so you're right in that it does fit into the mould. It's very Cronenbergian, it, it sort of assimilates and converses really well with his canon, but it lacks some just general, I don't know, filmmaking shine, I think. I think there's a lot that, that there's good points and bad points, really. I would say that he's got a great cast, um, really interesting actors who can sort of do what they do well, but at the same time, their characters are a little bit empty. So you've got like, uh, you've got like Viggo Mortensen, who, who, you know, he's troubled with this illness where he's one of the few people who can experience pain and he can't digest food properly. And he just sort of huffs and puffs his way through the whole thing. Like, he does it all through clenched teeth because he's meant to be in perpetual pain. So you never really get that sort of intimate conversational approach to the character that you get with other um, Cronenberg protagonists. And, you know, Kristen Stewart's in it, and she sort of plays a little bit of a an intense, repressed, weird uh, member of the National Organ Registry who asserts that surgery is the new sex and she does it like you know i've never seen kristen stewart act in this way before she's doing it really interestingly she's sort of like a bit manic and excitable but she's also basically got her tongue in vigo mortensen's ear when yeah. she says this it's the garth Marenghi thing of i know writers who use subtext and they're all cowards this film is about as subtle as a bat to the face yeah she walks up to him <laughs> after one of these performances and she's like oh vigo I read somewhere that surgery is the new sex. So like basically like nibbling on the inside of his earlobe while he's just lying in this sedan chair and his like performance partner is just sitting there with a glass of suspicious looking martini yeah. <laughs> and a haircut that makes Leah do really look like kind of cosplay Tintin. Maybe. I liked I liked Leah doing this. I think that she had the best stuff to work with. She seems to have a bit of an internal conflict going on. She kind of throws some objections to this big upcoming performance that they have ethical questions about. But she does kind of just move through the whole film with this very much like smug, disgusted look on her face. Um so again, like not very I I would say that Cronenberg has made like a very distant world in this film. Uh, already you're asking like, where are we? When are we? What's going on? Like it does away with most futuristic cinemas, rainy neon sign covered cyberpunk streets for like we're in these industrial tunnels or like these ruins underground or something like that. That's what everyone's home and venue seems to be. So like you're asking yourself like what's going on and I think that he's not really nailing which questions we're asking and what we're obviously like it's not the point of the film to ask these sorts of questions. Who's in charge here? What's the authority? What's the conflict in this society? But at the same time, you've got to give us something because we need to know how much we're suspending our disbelief by, right? Um, I would say that 
it's better when Cronenberg takes the films we've been discussing where he takes the normal world and it's a slow, methodical descent into his sort of twisted little fabrications rather than throwing us at a world where, oh, Viggo Mortensen is struggling with his giant chair made of spinal cords that helps him chew food. So he might he, he might take the much more radical path of having a an a zipper installed in his abdomen. Like it, 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 they're not comparative to us. It's not diffused very successfully. I, I agree. I mean, what's interesting is it's got tons of interesting ideas in it, and it's like and ideas that Cronenberg's been working with for years and all these like all these films we talk about it has a lot of similar ideas but what those films have that this doesn't have was a really compelling through line plot which mm -hmm. makes sense like i was really frustrated by a lot of the subplots mm -hmm. here you know, so there's a subplot about a mother who murders her son because he's eating a plastic bin and and that sort of doesn't really it, it kind of disappears for half the movie and then appears at the end um you've got this these kind of nefarious groups that kind of it's called new vice these kind of police officers who are up to stuff um there's a lot of double crossing like you see we've got the, you've got these this organization um where uh, christian short works for um who are basically groupies for uh this this performance art that's going on, but they're also registering, uh, um, you know, it's like it, it's in, asking interesting ideas. It's about human evolution. It's about what happens, how can humans survive the planet we live on that's covered in uh, like toxic waste and plastic. That's really interesting. But I think you have to marry that with a really compelling story. And I was just confused. There's a lot of just dead ends in this film. Mm -hmm. Characters who disappear. Characters whose stories are not re resolved. The ending is is kind of abrupt. The, the ending involves somebody eating a Mars bar made of plastic. You know that's not a a, a fun conclusion to a, a movie. You know, like I, I don't know. I I was very fr frustrated, and I just find it a little bit pretentious. Like I, I feel like is is he satirizing uh, performance art, for example, or is he taking it seriously? It was it was really hard to gauge because I felt all the all the acting was all over the place. It's as if every actor was just allowed to go off and do whatever performance they want mm -hmm. they're, like they're all in different films you know like uh and i i was just a bit confused by the whole thing and i feel like the, the re like it's interesting the world creates aesthetically is really interesting this underpopulated athens where everything's decaying and crumbling but i suspect the reason it's underpopulated is because it was shot during covid and probably because it's not that big budget like the film kind of looks kind of cheap to me you know even though they probably did spend a lot of money you know like the, the design is really interesting like, like these kind of chairs he's in it makes uh, he, he sits in a chair to eat because he can't eat properly and he's in pain but it looks and it looks like it's made of bone and gristle um it looks really cool but it doesn't really do anything to the plot it doesn't add to the plot in the way that you know all the all the other cool gory um effects in all his other films actually are, like drive the plot plot forward and mean something yeah know? the the plot is very like baggy and unfocused and also the scene to scene editing is a mess it's a mess scenes just all loads of scenes feel really unresolved or end basically in the middle of a sentence it's almost like they didn't have enough coverage to like pause on something so they just cut straight away people will make a comment and then almost before you've had a chance to draw a breath you'll move on to the next thing and the other thing that's really strange about this film i think it's partly a function of it being filmed in all these kind of like ruined Mediterranean places, the passage of time is incredibly unclear because the lighting is really similar in loads of the shots. Everything seems to be shot at dusk, which means you can never tell whether the day has just started or is just ending or whether you're in the same day you were in before. So that doesn't help when the plot is very like all over the place. 
and then the like temporal like there are temporal concerns in the sense that I literally don't know what time of day or what day of the week it is. That's not going to help you when you're trying to understand the man who's dressed like he's in Assassin's Creed. Viggo Mortensen as Batman hanging around the <laughs> ruined port talking to a man who might be from like the Vice Squad but is never entirely clarified. It is a bit of a mess at times, this film. I, I think that like, even if the plot had been a mess, it, even if the plot, you know, had just been absolutely nothing, it would have been interesting to view the film from a perspective of like practical effects. But other than that chair and this rather cool autopsy table that looks like H.R. Geigery, there's really not a lot of it. Like, no matter what end Cronenberg has done it to, he always delivers on a tactile experience. He always, like, really captures how it feels when, you know, bodies get poked and punctured, and and he's really good at capturing that, and he doesn't in this film at all. There's very little. There's a little bit of, like, there's a tiny little bit of surgery. There's, like, a little bit of surgery, but I think that he's kind of, like, short-selling the audience there. Maybe that's because he's shying away from being branded an exploitation director so he can get those, like, really long standing ovations at Cannes or whatever. But, you know, there's a scene where um, Viggo Mortensen has this zipper on his stomach and he unzips it and um, his partner performs oral sex on his exposed abdominal organs. And we don't see it, which I find so, like, you know, 70s, 80s Cronenberg would have never shied away from that. It would have been so disgusting. Lewis has been shortchanged on the zip job, and he would like his money back. Yeah, I think you should go and watch Videodrome. That's got all... <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm going to go rewatch Videodrome, yeah. because that's that's Cronenberg when he knew, oh, even if people, like, don't give a shit about what I'm trying to say about society or whatever, I can still, like, freak them out and rattle them and get a reaction. That's, I mean, that, and that kind of ties together a couple of the issues. One is that the editing of the film means that you have that scene and then it really abruptly cuts. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no lingering on really anything. Mm -hmm. And then the fact that if you're either not confident enough in the practical effects or you just don't have enough of them to go around, then you're sitting around. Like, there's a constant... And it kind of, you could say it's thematic if you wanted to be um, sympathetic to David Cronenberg because a lot of the film is about the kind of, like connections between pain and pleasure and all that kind of stuff so maybe he's trying to withhold the gnarly body horror that everybody wants from a David Cronenberg film from the audience but then when he's been like I don't have any of that but I do have this quite confusing story that is kind of a police thriller but also about a bunch of guys who eat plastic <laughs> Jamie <laughs> yeah I don't know it is I was excited because it's him going back to body horror. He's not really made a film like this since the 90s. I think X Extents in 99 was the last time he made a film like this. And I don't know, maybe he's just moved on. Maybe he's interested in different things and he's tried to go back and it, it feels a bit like a greatest hits. You know, like I say, it's got all the tropes that you've had in previous Cronenberg uh, films, but it just, yeah, it hasn't tied together in a satisfying way, you know? I don't know. It, it's it's just a... It's, it, for me, it's his first major misfire. Like, I, I usually enjoy all Cronenberg films, even some of like Naked Lunch, which is a bit confusing and sort of a tough watch, but it's still full of sort of great ideas and it's very funny. Um, this one just, like, it wasn't funny. Like, I, I don't know, like, people were laughing in the screening, I watched it, in, but I, I think it was maybe at the kind of bizarre performances. I don't know, I, I, like, I, I could never tell if I was meant to take it seriously or not, you know, when Lisa Do's saying all these kind of very pretentious things about reading the body like a poem and things like that Are, is that a joke or is it is it real you know I, I think he doesn't deliver on the plot he doesn't deliver on any practical effects really and i would say also that 
I find it really disingen- disingenuous. If it's if his, if what he's trying to tackle is like humanity's relationship with anatomy and how different bodies can be and different bodies can frighten people. I mean, can I point out the fact that everyone in this film is like Hollywood hot? Like it's led by Viggo Mortensen. There's like everyone in this film is incredibly buff. Like you know, it, it just sort of seems like he's not that committed to exploring anything that weird or upsetting or challenging. It, it, it does sort of seem maybe sanitized for a more critical audience. And the central idea is really cool. Like the idea that your like human bodies will evolve to, uh, you know, um, like take on the changes in the world. Because like it never actually says what's happened to the world. Mm-hmm. You get the sense there has been some sort of natural disaster or some sort of war. Mm-hmm. That ever like because like it's there's a, a shot of like a, a it looks like a military ship that's sunk at the start of the film but nothing's really explained so you get the sense that something's happened and human bodies are changing to adapt to that and that's an interesting idea but I think you need to give us more to hold on to to, to like to like flesh that out yeah in many ways it feels like a film that sort of backed the wrong horse from the start mm-hmm. if it had been more about the the underground group of people who eat plastic. And how their bodies were being modified by that, or how it was like a push pull between doing things that are of, that appear on the face of them to be instinctively bad, but are actually good, or can actually be good. That might be better than the, as you say, hot BDSM medical play fetish slash artist to artist relationship that we end up focusing on. Yeah, there's also a scene where like they, they they perform a really kind of gross, I guess actually a little bit exploitative autopsy on a child. Mm-hmm. And you, everybody looks inside the child, and it's like, and everybody gasps. And I don't know what you're meant to be seeing. Is like, it's like, it's like very dingily designed, and you can't really see the organs. They're all tattooed. I, I, I don't know. I was confused. I, I, I just thought, what am I meant to think here? Is, is this human evolution good or is it bad? And if it's if it's both, can you explain it or can you give us some reason to like understand it? For a, a setting that sort of has no real ground, like you say, you know, we there's some kind of war that's happened or something's changed. Humanity is different now. We're in a, this weird place. It's always nighttime. What's going on? The dialogue does so much heavy lifting in that, like, you know, in the first couple scenes, Viggo Mortensen has to explain, oh, I need to go get my help me digest chair fixed because it's not helping me digest but at the same time nothing that they actually heavily expose on answers any of our questions so it's a really frustrating film to listen to it is a film that i would say is interesting but also kind of shit and i have one grumble so i already asked why Viggo mortensen was dressed like he's in assassin's creed i think we've established it's just a cool fit Mm -hmm. but there's a scene where a guy is dancing in a dingily lit underground bunker and he's had his mouth sewn up and he's covered in grafted on ears. Now my question to you, Jamie, is why does the ear man, when he's doing his provocative many-eared dance, have to wear pants? I don't know. What a society they live in. I think Cronenberg is is uh, is losing his nerve. 80s Cronenberg, that boy's lad would have been out. Mm. I was also going to say, there is a little <laughs> bit of disconnect between the female nudity and male nudity. And Cronenberg's somebody who's always kind of broke this. Like Viggo Mortensen always got naked in mm-hmm. uh, like, you know, things like Eastern Promises, like a, like a naked uh, knife fight in a sauna. You know, he's, he's not shied away from that. But here he does seem to leer a bit on the women rather than the men, which I thought was a bit out of order. Yeah. We should have had Viggo Mortensen should have taken that big cape off. Yeah. 
then we'd have been adding an extra star yeah. onto this right up. That's, that's, <laughs> that's the organ you want to see, not, yeah. not the new spleen. Oh. <laughs> Drum roll for Jamie. So, if any of that has given you any cause to want to catch this film, a film which does have some interesting points, but is also kind of shit, uh, Crimes of the Future is in UK cinemas uh, from the 9th of September, and other better David Cronenberg films are playing at cinemas across the UK to coincide with its release. Okay, I think that's about all we have for today. So, thank you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you, Jamie. Cheers, Pierre. Uh, before we go, just a couple of things to flag up ahead of next time. We will be talking Take One Action, the uh, kind of social change film festival, which is returning to Edinburgh and Glasgow in the middle of the month. Uh, Anahit will be back from Venice, hopefully, to stop us from shouting about Viggo Mortensen's organ or me describing, <laughs> openly describing films we've just talked about as kind of shit. <laughs> so that'll be fun. Um, and in the meantime, if you want to follow what we're up to, you can get Jamie on Twitter at Jamie Dunn Esquire. You can get Lewis on Lou underscore Rob underscore. You can get me on PTRSMPSN. That's Peter Simpson with no vowels. Um, if you like the pod, then please subscribe, leave us a nice review. Tell your friends what you heard. Pass them on to us. We'll make sure they don't go wrong. And thanks again to Glasgow Youth Film Festival for their help and for getting in touch. We hope if any of you listen through to the end that you haven't been scarred for life. Um, we'll be back in two weeks. Thank you very much. Bye. 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 Bye.